It was after midnight on Friday, October 9th, 1891. Australia's Parliament of Victoria had just finished its final meetings for the week. They had been discussing how to subsidize the state's depleting funds in the face of an economic depression. As was customary, the Speaker's messenger, Frederick Davis, and the Sergeant-at-Arms, George Edward Upward, formally ended the session by locking away the ceremonial parliamentary mace. The mace symbolized the official's power of authority in Victoria, and Parliament could not hold a session without its presence in the official chamber. At 1.20 a.m., Upward and Davis stored the mace in its box in the Speaker's private room. The next day, housekeeper George Pierce happened to glance at the box and found himself doing a double take. He couldn't believe his eyes. The box was empty. The mace was gone. Police and government officials investigated a range of theories, rumors, and allegations as to who took the mace. Some were straightforward, some were shocking, and some were completely bizarre. The lost mace captivated Melbourne's population. The press connected the disappearance of the mace to what it represented for class and gender issues that had been bubbling up across the country. How was the mace stolen? Who took it? Were the rumors true that members of parliament had simply misplaced a mace in a brothel? Hi, I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Welcome to Gone, a ParCast original. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke Colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love— Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to Parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can find all previous episodes of Gone, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. In this episode, we're going to look into the Parliament of Victoria's Mace that disappeared in 1891. The mace has never been found, and the mystery remains unsolved. The Australian media was electrified by this scandal. Australia's Maitland Mercury newspaper called it, quote, the most extraordinary robbery ever heard of in the colonies without parallel in the constitutional history of the world, end quote, in its initial reporting on the robbery on October 13, 1891. That headline might have been exaggerated to sell a few more papers, but to this day, the lost scepter makes for a fascinating and incredibly odd story. No one has ever discovered where it is or deduced who took it in the first place. But of course, the press and people of Victoria have put forward a few theories. The first theory is that Thomas Jeffrey, an electrical engineer who worked in the Parliament building, stole the mace in the middle of the night and tried to pawn it. The second theory 
is that unknown members of Parliament took the mace to a brothel in Little Lonsdale Street and left it there. The scandalous nature of this theory made it the most popular among newspapers across the country. The third and more recent theory is that after a night of debauchery, two members of Parliament who had borrowed the mace realized they wouldn't be able to return it without being caught. And so, they paid thieves to dump the mace in a river far from the town center. The mace's disappearance came at an apex of political dissolution and a general lack of faith in the Australian government by its people. Though the mace was only a symbolic artifact, it represented a lot more to Australian citizens and its loss furthered a gap between the people and the government. Before we discuss the mystery of this specific mace, it may be helpful to provide some historical context about why maces are so important in countries like Australia. Although the use of ceremonial maces dates all the way back to ancient Egypt, the modern concept of them comes from Great Britain. During the Renaissance, the king's sergeant-at-arms would carry a mace for the purpose of protecting the king. Over the centuries, these maces came to be more decorated and extravagant, to the point that they really functioned more as ornaments than as weapons. As martial weapons gave way to firearms during the 15th century, the mace remained a staple of the British court as a purely ceremonial object. By the 17th century, it was custom to display a mace in the House of Commons whenever it convened. The mace represents the authority of the sovereign and the constitutional rights of the citizens protected by Parliament. Australia, which became a British colony in 1788, adopted this tradition after the British established the Australian colonial government. The mace we're discussing today was coated in silver, overlaid with gold plates, and twined with golden shamrocks and flower heads. It may be an odd tradition, but it's an important one, at least to the people and representatives of Great Britain and Australia. To this day, the parliaments of either country cannot legally convene unless a mace is present. There's even a political term called grabbing the mace. If a representative grabs the mace and walks the house floor with it, it symbolizes a lack of faith in parliament's ability to govern. While the ceremonial mace plays an important symbolic role, the physical maces themselves are completely replaceable, which makes sense. It would be odd if a government had to shut down because one specific mace went missing. There are always spare maces on hand if the main mace is damaged, broken, missing, or stolen. The disappearance of the Parliament of Victoria's mace in 1891 didn't hold up government proceedings in the slightest. The Lords simply summoned a replacement mace and went on with their daily business. But its disappearance did stand as a symbol of the state of Australian politics at the time. In the 1890s, Australia was in the midst of a widespread economic depression, the colony had enjoyed a boom during the mid-1800s because of an influx of wealth and foreign aid from its sovereign nation, England. But when a major bank in Britain collapsed in 1890, the loss of economic confidence in the British economy spread across its colonies, including Australia. A lot of Australian infrastructure at that time relied on British loans. 
When those loans were jeopardized, construction on new houses, roads, and railways ceased. Additionally, a decreased demand for wool, Australia's core industry, stifled national exports. By the 1890s, Australia's banks were starting to close down. Then, in 1891, a rainstorm caused the Yarra River to flood the city of Melbourne with its own sewage. With overflowing cesspits and polluted water, Melbourne started to perpetually smell like feces. Locusts swarmed the city. Typhoid fever made its way through the population. Unemployment soared, and many of the city's citizens became too sick to work. People lost their homes and had to live on the street, which made them easy targets for Melbourne's oppressive vagrancy laws. Vagrancy laws at that time allowed an officer to arrest a citizen on an overwhelming amount of offenses, including things as mild as occupying public places at night. The vagrancy laws also targeted women convicts. In the 1800s, England had made it common practice to export their criminals to Australia. Since most of these criminals were men, Australia started to suffer from a gender imbalance in its population. Britain tried to help counteract by increasing the number of women prisoners it sent overseas. Most of these women were sex workers. Australia had few resources to create new employment opportunities for these women, so most of them simply took up sex work in their new country. This, in turn, led to public controversy about how the country's vagrancy laws unfairly targeted sex workers. Because sex work was so widespread, it became prevalent in most parts of Melbourne society, including Parliament. Parliament enforced laws that denied rights to women and limited their opportunities. At the same time, members of Parliament would often end their day by heading over to the nearby brothels of the Red Light District. The ties between sex workers and politicians revealed the enormous double standard of Parliament. In 1891, Melbourne even housed one of the world's first call-girl networks. The telephone was a relatively new invention then, and members of Parliament often used the new technology to make appointments. The same year the mace went missing, Victoria's Parliament passed a law that extended legal protection to higher-class sex workers and brothels. So the government created a situation where many women had few options outside of sex work and then made full use of those women. Naturally, this didn't sit well with many of the citizens. The double standard eventually led to the formation of Australia's first women's suffrage society, who became one of the more vocal interest groups to speak out against government hypocrisy. In September of 1891, the Women's Suffrage Society presented a petition for women's right to vote to the Victorian Parliament with nearly 30,000 signatures. It espoused the radical idea that a government of the people, by the people, and for the people should mean all the people and not one half. The press called it the Monster Petition, whether monster was referring to the petition's size or content was unclear. The size of the petition suddenly legitimized a movement for equality that had been steadily growing on the fringes of Melbourne. Activists broke class lines to unite with housewives, servants, shopkeepers, and yes, sex workers. 
They argued that the laws in place put women in positions where they had no other choice beyond sex work and then punished the women for exercising their only options. But if women could vote, then real change could happen. Sadly, the petition was foiled by Parliament, a governing body made up entirely of men who refused to even entertain the idea of women's suffrage. As part of their dismissal, the Assembly mocked the legitimacy of its signatures, suggesting the papers were disgracefully loaded with fraudulent or duplicated names. This behavior showed a tragic dissonance between the country's leaders and the needs of its people. Two weeks before the mace was stolen, an engineering project near Melbourne inadvertently released natural gas into the air around the city. It mixed with the feces-laden water that still sat in the streets and, before long, caught fire. Melbourne was literally burning, while its most vulnerable citizens were demanding social change. In the face of their leadership, the stodgy members of parliament mocked their efforts. To top it all off, they went and lost the mace that was supposed to serve as the symbol of their power and their responsibilities to the people. If the mace represented the rights of Victoria's citizens, it was stolen in a time where the public wasn't sure if their rights were being protected at all. More people than ever were unemployed, sick, and persecuted. The press fed into this anxiety as each newspaper tried to make sense of the city's inexplicable decline. The theft of the mace offered further proof that Melbourne was far from the marvelous capital it once was. This political context informs the main theories about what happened to the mace. No one suspects that someone outside of the government broke in and stole the mace. All of the theories, in one way or another, lay the responsibility of the missing mace at Parliament's feet. The mace went from symbolizing the bond between the government and the people to symbolizing that same government's own ineffectiveness and corruption. But did someone within the government really steal the mace? Or was it just another example of Parliament's negligence? We'll discuss the aftermath of the mace's disappearance and the theories as to who was behind it after this. Now back to the story. In October of 1891, amidst a backdrop of political unrest and social outrage, the Parliament of Victoria's ceremonial mace was stolen. It has never been found. Let's review what we know was happening at Victoria's Parliament House when the mace was stolen. George Pierce, a gruff, meticulous housekeeper, was assigned to lock the house up as soon as the Parliament members staying the night had retired to their rooms. Sleeping in Parliament House was common for members and the building's custodians. Pierce finished his rounds and stored the key in the Speaker's room. Speaker Henry Matthew Davies was not staying the night, so the room was empty and locked. Or it should have been. At some time in the night, an older member of Parliament named Smith woke up to find his door open and a light shining from the hall outside. According to his testimony, this is all he remembers before he fell back asleep. But we know that since Pierce had locked Parliament from the outside... It was probably one of his co-workers or someone who had access to the building. 
The next day, October 10th, at around 1 p.m., Davies returned to the speaker's room and noticed the mace's box had been tampered with. There were chiseled marks on the case, as if someone had scratched it with a screwdriver. The box's door was closed, but no longer locked. The lock springs were jammed shut. Davies rushed to get housekeeper George Pierce, who pried the box open to find it was empty. The mace was gone. From the get-go, the theft seemed deliberate. The speaker's office had not been ransacked. Only the mace was taken. Davies immediately set out to search the whole building. Only upon returning to the anteroom did he realize the window had been left unlocked. The window of the speaker's room looked out on the north wing of the building. There were only a few feet between the windowsill and the north wing's roof. George Pierce asserted no one could have entered through the door without a key. However, anyone could have seen or entered the room through that window. While inspecting the room, Sergeant-at-Arms George Upward noticed black finger marks on the windowsill of the speaker's room. It looked as if the window had been pushed up from the outside. Perhaps the most bizarre element of this story is that after this discovery, no one did anything. It took until October 13th, four days after the theft, for Speaker Davies to tell Parliament the mace was missing. This could have been an attempt to keep a tight lid on the robbery. Alternatively, perhaps it was simply not a priority for Parliament. If there were no parliamentary sessions over those four days, there would have been no need to produce the mace. Of course, this also meant that the thief, whoever he was, had plenty of time to cover his tracks. Plus, if the speaker went about his daily business from his office, the crime scene would have been altered before the police could examine it. It's unclear why it took so long to report the theft, but when Upward finally reported the robbery to the police on the 13th, detectives Thomas Nixon and Michael Edward Ward were assigned to the case. Nixon and Ward started investigating the theft and quickly produced a suspect whose potential involvement leads us to the first possible answer to the mystery of what happened to the missing mace. Our first theory states that the mace was stolen by an employee who worked within the Parliament building. Nixon and Ward came about this theory after they met a man named James Merrick, who claimed to have seen the thief. On October 10th, the day after the mace disappeared, Merrick, a grip man on the Melbourne tramway, was traveling on the Victoria Street Line. He passed by the back gate of the Parliament House between 12 and 1 a.m. He saw a man suddenly run out of the small gate. The man didn't hail Merrick, but instead ran across the track and jumped onto the locomotive. He was carrying a package wrapped in brown paper that was around five feet long. Merrick watched as the man accidentally knocked the package against the back post of the train, producing a telling ring. The sound of the impact clearly indicated that the package was metal. When it struck, the man nearly fell off the train, and Merrick halted as quickly as he could. Once he saw the man was all right, Merrick kept going. On the train, the man held the suspicious package with the big end down. Its top was bound over like a hood. According to Merrick, 
The man got off at either Hoddle or Nicholson Street, both of which were far from Parliament. He wasn't looking where he was going and nearly ran into a lamppost. He stumbled away quickly, carrying the oddly shaped object with both hands. After newspapers announced that the mace was missing, Merrick remembered what he had seen and went to the police. He was taken to the Parliament building to speak with George Upward about what he saw. As he was passing the Queen's Hall, Merrick spotted one of the workers in the building and stopped suddenly. He pointed at the man and exclaimed that it was the man he had seen fleeing with the package. The man he was pointing at was named Thomas Jeffrey, an electrical engineer who worked in the parliamentary building. Jeffrey was interrogated by Nixon, Ward, and Upward. They asked if he'd been home on the night of the 10th. He didn't think he had. They asked if he knew anything about a package he might have taken home at around that time. Jeffrey thought so, but didn't remember. When Upward asked him if he remembered anything, Jeffrey seemed frazzled. Quote, my memory is so bad, I can't think, end quote. Things weren't looking good for Jeffrey. His witness was so assured, and his own alibi was non-existent. Groundskeeper Pierce had said the mace box could have been opened by anyone who was in the building and knew how to use a screwdriver. Jeffrey was an engineer, and he had been in the building on the night of the theft. One of the screwdrivers in Jeffrey's workshop fit the marks on the box. The evidence was stacking up, and Nixon and Ward thought they had their man. Jeffrey cooperated throughout the investigation. He didn't object to the police searching his house. They didn't find the mace, nor did they find any paper or string that matched the description of the package Merrick had described. Jeffrey did eventually remember that he had taken a package home on the night of the 10th. He sometimes borrowed tools from his station at work and transported them in a package. He brought police the package he used and showed that it was far smaller than what Merrick had described. Now, Merrick only provided his story to the police after the theft was reported in the paper, so it would have been four days after the event. He may have been a biased witness, Jeffrey explained that the metallic clang Merrick claimed to have heard were likely bits of zinc that he had in the package with his other tools. Jeffrey remained the prime suspect for the remainder of the investigation, even as he was allowed to return to work at the parliamentary building. Without the mace or a confession that he had taken it, the police didn't have enough to charge him. But as long as the mace was still missing, they couldn't outright clear him either. The evidence does make Jeffrey a suspicious character, but it could all truly be circumstantial. Plus, there was never an obvious motive for Jeffrey to have stolen the mace beyond simple greed, and even that theory is flimsy. Recall that there were other valuables in the speaker's room that were untouched. The mace itself probably wouldn't have netted much value, even if Jeffrey could have found a fence who would have been willing to take it. Jeffrey was an electrician and worked in the parliamentary building. He was likely paid well, and it's never been clear what reason he might have had to risk losing his job and jail time in exchange for the middling value of the mace. Still, the police had likely hoped that Jeffrey could have provided an easy end to the investigation. But after a year, Jeffrey asked the speaker to intervene on his behalf 
He was tired of being called a thief, despite the fact that police hadn't proven that he'd stolen the mace. The speaker, in turn, pressured the police to expand their search. At the same time, the press was itching for an update on the story, and as police started to move away from Jeffrey and look for new leads, they found one. Our second theory is that members of Parliament took the mace to a brothel in Little Lonsdale Street and left it with the sex workers. The brothel theory emerged a full year after the mace's initial disappearance. In October 1892, an article in a weekly gossip newspaper called Table Talk devised a news story about where the mace went. Their primary source was Detective Sergeant Lomax. Lomax claimed an unnamed group of parliament members, including government ministers, held a party on the night of the mace's disappearance. They phoned the brothels at the nearby red-light district and summoned a number of sex workers to come join them. At some point during the night, the party broke into the speaker's room and pried open the lock on the mace's box. They went off with the mace in tow to Annie Wilson's Boccaccio house, which was a brothel on Lonsdale Street. In the few months following Table Talk's explosive accusation, the brothel story had been picked up by over a hundred different papers. Each one had their own interpretation of what might have happened on Little Lonsdale Street that fateful night. The police investigated this theory after the Table Talk article started being widely circulated. A number of witnesses confirmed that there weren't any sex workers visiting Parliament House on the night of October 9th. Yet it's unknown if the detectives actually went through the red-light district to look for the mace themselves. Even if they did, no new suspects were named, and there was no record that police interviewed anyone from the brothels. Still, despite the lack of real proof, the brothel idea remained ubiquitous. The scandal of the missing mace and the apparent association between the brothels and Parliament left an air of impropriety over the government that none could seem to escape. When Speaker Davies resigned in 1892, he cited the theft of the mace as a factor in his decision to step down. By then, the newspapers were emphasizing the mace's disappearance as a sign of institutional ineffectiveness. The story took on a broader meaning, particularly when it was brought up by those who supported Australian independence from Great Britain. How could anyone expect Australia to be taken seriously as a free and independent nation if they couldn't even locate a lost mace? The press coverage of the mace investigation also fueled public distrust in the police. This was made evident by a particularly grisly case that came to light in 1892, when an abandoned shipping box was discovered on the sidewalk of a suburb in Hawthorne. Inside was a pair of dismembered legs. A week later, an accompanying pair of decomposing arms were discovered a couple of miles away in Faulkner Park. Doctors were able to conclude the legs and arms belonged to the same body. However, no one was able to find out whose limbs these were, who committed the crime, or even where the head and body had ended up. The case was never solved, 
and the press coverage of the investigation mentioned the missing mace in its coverage as a growing pattern of the Australian Police Department failing to solve high-profile cases. A popular newspaper column in the Perry-Bingle papers argued that legs and arms appearing out of nowhere inspired a lack of confidence in Melbourne's detective department. They compared the limbs to the disappearance of conspicuous and public valuables. No one wondered what valuables the columnist was referring to. The Hawthorne mystery was a case study in how far the public had gone in distrusting what the police had to say. The suffrage movement also commented on the Mace scandal and its representation of government inadequacy. On December 10, 1892, a newspaper published a cartoon about the missing Mace. Its caption read, The Present Whereabouts of the Lost Speaker's Mace and depicted three women prancing around the phallic scepter. The song lyrics that were written over the scene, Tarara Boomdie, came from a song performed in the risque comic opera Miss Helliette. The lyrics seemed to identify the women as sex workers. The cartoon was thus interpreted to mean that these women, to whom Parliament had denied rights, had won a symbolic victory by stealing a symbol of parliamentary power. The popularity of the cartoon shows that even a year later, people were still talking about the mace and the government's failure to recover it. The detectives were at the end of their rope. In a confidential report on the brothel case filed in January 1893, over a year after the mace vanished, Detective Nixon dismissed the story as rubbish. He became so frustrated with the popularity of the theory that he attacked the public in his report. He wondered why everyone seemed to know where the mace had gone, with the, quote, single exception of the police. On January 6, 1893, the Ballarat Courier declared it was obvious the members of Parliament had become, quote, self-seeking, ill-informed, and parochial, end quote. The only way to prevent its evil from spreading was to shut down the government entirely. Reverends in churches would also condemn the Parliament members for their disgrace. After the Courier piece, Parliament couldn't ignore the accusations anymore. The unsolved fate of the mace, combined with the torrent of negative publicity, demanded their full attention. One night in January 1893, shortly after the piece was published, members furiously debated how to respond to the brothel scandal for three hours straight. Half the room thought the rumors were so damning that they had to respond immediately. The other half thought Parliament couldn't debase itself by commenting on baseless accusations. The Premier, William Shields, led the latter charge. He refused to deny rumors if the rumors were untrue. In the end, Parliament went on the offensive. The representatives reached out to the publisher of the Ballarat Courier and used their influence to force the paper to print a full retraction and an apology. The retraction proved to be useless, and many people continued to believe the brothel story. For decades, newspapers continued to theorize about what had happened to the mace. But over a century later, a new theory would emerge that would seem to connect all the disparate dots of the case and, potentially, point to the real truth of what happened. 
We'll look at this theory, which involves Parliament members, a brothel, Thomas Jeffrey, and two new city criminals, right after this. Now back to the story. By the time Australia secured its independence from Great Britain in 1901, the missing mace of the Parliament of Victoria was essentially viewed as a distant, albeit embarrassing, footnote in the colonial government's history. Over the next century, there were no new leads in the case, and the mace was assumed to be lost forever. But then, a development was discovered. Our final theory as to the fate of the stolen mace of the Parliament of Victoria centers around a document unearthed in 2013 by historian Raymond Wright. The document was written in 1963 by Henry William Jeffrey, Thomas Jeffrey's son. The testament puts forward what Thomas Jeffrey believes happened in 1891 as dictated to Henry. In his story, Jeffrey was arrested by the police early in the investigation back in 1891. However, he wasn't arrested for stealing the mace. Jeffrey had actually assaulted one of Parliament's members. When he was taken in, Jeffrey pleaded with the officer to have his charges withdrawn. In return, Jeffrey offered to reveal what had really happened with the mace. Jeffrey explained that he had been in the Parliament building on the night the mace disappeared. He confirmed the story that some members of Parliament had thrown a party, which got out of hand. These members pried open the box, picked up the mace, and moseyed on over to the red light district. But after an evening on Little Lonsdale, the members panicked. They realized they couldn't smuggle the mace back into Parliament without being caught. In the early morning, they found two common city thieves loitering on the streets of Melbourne. They paid the thieves handsomely to take the mace off their hands and dispose of it as far away as possible. These thieves allegedly brought the mace to the Maribyrnong River and flung it in. Upstream from the colonial sugar refinery, this river is just under an hour and a half from Parliament and Little Lonsdale on foot. Police searched far and wide for the mace, but it's unlikely they would have been able to find it if it truly had been thrown in a river. It's worth noting this theory is solely derived from the Henry William Jeffrey document. There isn't solid proof beyond what Henry was told by his own father, who wouldn't have known what happened to the mace after it was taken out of the building, unless he followed the revelry. But Henry William Jeffrey seems to indicate that his father gathered what had happened by speaking to witnesses in the red light district who had seen it. That said, how does the rest of this theory stack up against what we know about Thomas Jeffrey? To answer that, let's look at each of the theories we've discussed over this episode. For one, was Thomas Jeffrey a criminal? James Merrick's account of Jeffrey's suspected theft is the most detailed statement on record. The lax nature of the police and Parliament's investigation in the early days of the case would have provided Jeffrey with ample opportunity to get rid of the mace and cover his tracks. However, the more Jeffrey spoke to and helped the detectives, the less likely it seemed he was giving an award-winning performance in playing dumb. It seemed more likely... He was just, well, a forgetful man. We've discussed the social catastrophes surrounding Melbourne at this time. 
one would expect the culprit of a theft like this to have a method to his madness. A financial incentive, anger at his country's institutions. Jeffrey seemingly didn't have any of these things. He's not a very compelling criminal. So let's examine the mother of all rumors, the brothel allegations. There was certainly a level of tabloid journalism that led to this story becoming so popular. But at the same time, the relationship between Parliament and the Red Light District was well known. And this story reads as rather plausible. In 1906, it was revealed Chief Secretary Sir Samuel Gillett had financial dealings with Madame Brussels' infamous Lonsdale Street brothel. Their relationship spanned decades. It's safe to assume that Gillett was not the only parliament leader who abused his power to support and attend high-class brothels. The police said they dismissed the brothel theory almost immediately. If that's the case, it's possible they never actually visited the women at the Boccaccio house at all. To make the effort to investigate, they would have had to believe there was some amount of truth to this theory, which the premier said was not possible. The power dynamic between the heads of state and the police force adds a complicated layer to this investigation. Think of the social uproar that could have ensued in Victoria if detectives Nixon and Ward did find something in the red light district. The scratch marks and spring jamming George Pierce described on the mace box could be from a thief making his way through the window. But anyone sleeping at Parliament House that evening could have retrieved the key to the box from the Speaker's room. Despite all the denials from Parliament, we're willing to wager that some members pried the mace out of its box and brought it to Little Lonsdale Street. But we're less likely to believe the mace could have remained hidden in a brothel throughout the decades of investigations. This is why the theory with the most incredulous backstory, the documents from Thomas Jeffrey's son, might be the most reasonable of all three. It's crucial to note that Henry William Jeffrey was eight years old when his father was accused of the theft in 1891. Henry wasn't a witness to any situation at Parliament or with the police. This all came from his dad. And Thomas had proven himself to have a poor memory. Thomas gave no details to his son about why he would have assaulted a Parliament member. In telling this story to Henry, Thomas likely mixed up and fabricated details. We also know Jeffrey didn't learn that the mace was thrown in the Maribyrnong River until several years after the scandal. He discovered it when he spoke to his friend, who spoke to a priest who had visited the two criminals in prison. The background of this theory strains credibility, but Jeffrey's job put him in a position where he would have seen parliament members partying and leaving the house with the mace. This theory would prove the illicit actions that Jeffrey believes he bore witness to, that the police couldn't successfully disprove, and that the press was never willing to forget about. And the result of the actions of Parliament members paying some common criminals to dispose of their mace in a river on the other side of town would actually explain why the police could never find it. The most helpful way to think about what happened to the mace is to wonder how a century could pass without a living soul coming across the object. At 16 pounds, the mace was light enough to be swept away by a tide. Once dumped into the Maribyrnong, which was close to the bay, 
The mace could have followed a current all the way out into the Indian Ocean, vanishing into the bottomless depths of the sea. We think this is the most likely theory. Henry Jeffrey's document is likely a muddled interpretation of the truth with a lot of inaccuracies. But given what we know about the case and the fact that the mace was never found, it still seems like the theory that is most plausible. The mace's disappearance continues to fascinate and perplex the Parliament of Victoria. To this day, the Australian government has an open reward for 50000 Australian dollars to whomever can offer information that would lead to its return. No one has come forward. In 2002, a group of archaeologists investigated Little Lonsdale. They believed that thanks to a century of information, they would be the ones to finally unearth the mace. Ultimately, they found much more mundane items. The return of the object, if it ever happens, won't change how deeply its loss was felt. The mace was stolen at a time when Victorian citizens needed to feel their rights were protected. For its social impact and its impossible disappearance, we're willing to say that the Argus newspaper all the way back in October 1891 might have been right. At least at the time, this was the most extraordinary robbery ever heard of in Australia. Thanks again for tuning in to Gone. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. You can find all previous episodes of Gone, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by David Turk, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Gone was written by Russell Goldman and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.